You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all. It's me, Bridget. I had the honor and pleasure of sitting down with my dear friend, Camper English. Camper is a San Francisco-based cocktail and spirit writer. He's a speaker, a competition judge, and he's a consultant. Now, Camper has visited over 140 distilleries and blending houses. He's also a member of the United States Bartenders Guild, and he has been voted one of the 100 most influential figures in the global bar industry all three years, folks, of the Drinks International Bar World 100 list. Camper shares with us his love of all things ice, why it's important ingredient in the cocktail, the books that he has written, and so much more. So sit back, relax, grab yourself your favorite Maker's Mark cocktail, and enjoy the show. Camper, welcome to Served Up. I am really excited that you're on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you tell our listeners about what brought you into the beverage industry? Oh, sure. Um, I like drinks. <laughs> That's the, the short answer. I was um, in my younger days, I was pretty much uh, club trash uh, and a raver and all of that in the early 90s. And I had uh, other careers doing science and uh, then software stuff. But uh, I was always going out to bars and clubs and stuff like that. And eventually, I um, was laid off from my dot-com job in uh, 2001 and started writing bar and club reviews for fun and turned that into um, a, a career accidentally. I got through college without taking any English courses at all, which oh is gosh. hopefully not too apparent in some of my writing, but uh I accidentally got into it because I made recreation into occupation. That's incredible. Recreation into occupation. That's very cool. What really um, opened your eyes to the cocktail nerd world? Well, um, I had been reading about some of the New York bars and I had been going out in the, the era of the uh, pomegranate cosmopolitan and the mojito, sometimes with actual fresh juice included. And finally, we got to the era of the rebirth of the classic cocktail and the speakeasy bar starting to open. And so I was covering them, um, but the specific bars that made a big um, deal of it around 2006, 2008 or, or so, like uh, Rye. Uh, I live in San Francisco and bars like Rye and Bourbon and Branch and um, some of the other bars in town. Um, they were doing like the really top quality stuff that we would hear about on the East Coast. Um, things like Scott Beatty was doing in, in mm -hmm. Napa at Cyrus and mm -hmm. other venues there were 
really exciting. And all the media was based in New York and it was Pegu Club, PDT, Pegu Club, PDT. And then eventually we got Bourbon and Branch, um, which may have opened before PDT, actually. And so there was a critical mass of cocktail bars doing paying really close attention to cocktails and ingredients and history. And I saw that it was not going to go away. It was uh, not just a little trend, but I figured it was going to be around for a while. It turns out I was correct in that. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was just really fun to learn about and to track and then to write about. Part of what I enjoy about uh, covering cocktails and spirits is learning for myself what the bartenders have learned first and then sort of translating that to the consumer audience who might come in and not immediately understand what is special or unique about a bar or the history or just how uh, nerdy you can get about the cocktails and spirits and bartending. I love that. Is that then when you started um, your blog, Alcademics? Yes, I think I originally I used to have the website cramper.com. Cramper? What is that? That was an old school blog, just me (laughs) talking smack about going out to bars. And Mm -hmm. um, I had early digital cameras and stuff like that, all hand coded HTML. And then I had a sort of mini blog on that called Cocktails with Camper. And then I spun that out to alcademics.com, which has been a standalone website since I think around 2000. Eight, um, and I was writing enough about cocktails and spirits to give it its own um, website. Okay, and then at what point? Because you have really become, and I want to talk about this first because you're an expert on a couple topics considered in the industry, an expert on a couple topics, and one of those is ice. What got you excited about ice? And I know that I read that you actually taught about ice in Iceland. We need to talk about that. So (laughs) where did that all start? Well, it all started with um, learning from bartenders and their attention to ice. We would hear about uh, hand cut ice at Milk and Honey in New York Mm -hmm. and um, how bartenders were trying to make clear ice and then cut it up by hand. And I went to some talks at Tales of the Cocktail. And I thought the theory of making clear ice, which was at the time, something like boiling it uh, and then letting it freeze and then letting it melt and then (laughs) letting it freeze again, something like that to try to get the air out through repeated heating and and freezing. It it didn't make sense to me that that would work. So just using my science brain. (laughs) And so I decided to test out what works to make clear ice because I'm sure uh, you as well as me as as kids, we always heard, you've got to boil the water. And that rumor is still persistent. Uh, Mm -hmm. We just had generations of people told us one thing that apparently no one ever tried themselves at home (laughs) because it just doesn't work. And uh, it may, you know, help a little, but it it doesn't, you don't boil water and then you get clear ice. Uh, So I decided to test all the theories on making clear ice, not expecting that I would actually figure it out at the end. I thought I was just going to disprove ways to uh, make clear ice. But as I experimented over the course of almost nine months, I uh, figured it out, which uh, as I'm sure people will be wondering if they don't already know, uh, we call it directional freezing, which means you freeze ice, not like in an ice cube where uh, it's freezing in from all sides towards the center, and it pushes any trapped air and impurities into that center and makes a cloudy core. We do instead, we put it in like a a cooler with the top off 
and therefore it's only going to freeze from the top towards the bottom, pushing the trapped air and impurities towards the bottom. So we don't actually get a clear block of ice this direction. We just have all clear ice on one side until the last part to freeze, which is at the bottom. So we can either freeze it solid and then chop off the cloudy part, or you can only let the block start freezing until it's about 75% or so frozen and no cloudy ice will have formed yet as it's freezing top towards the bottom. And so you have just a big clear slab of ice that you then cut up. So uh, I figured that out. I think it's 11 years ago now. And uh, a lot of people now use that technique around the world and a lot of clear ice cube trays. Pretty much uh, it's the only way to make clear ice. In theory, we all say, oh, if you put the water under a vacuum and suck out all the trapped gases, then you can get clear ice. But as far as I know, no one's actually been able to do that. So um, the way that the ice cube trays work now is they have a, an ice cube tray that looks traditional and it sits inside of something insulated and has holes in the bottom. And mm-hmm. so it forms like a regular ice cube shape, but it, the air gets pushed out the bottom of the tray and uh, stored in like a reservoir of water underneath it. And so you just have the clear part. And uh, there, are, there are lots of those products. Wish I had uh, invented one myself. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm surprised you haven't invented something like that yet, Camper. I you know, we'll someone a little bit more uh, entrepreneurial than I did uh, figured it out. <laughs> and now there's just a lot of uh, versions of the same thing. Oh, sure. sure. Same technique. Yeah. Um, you know, for our listeners, maybe that are just entering the cocktail world or want to get into the cocktail world, right? Can you tell us why ice is important? You know, what you're talking about, why is this important to a cocktail? Sure. Well, there are a couple reasons, and I have to admit that the the biggest reason is it looks better. Um, a, a clear ice cube just looks gorgeous in a glass. The it, it's totally transparent. You can read the coaster beneath your uh, cocktail, and um, it's a really big difference. I always liken it to drinking a martini out of a styrofoam cup versus a nice, elegant um, stem piece of glassware. It's the same drink. However, the experience is completely different. And it's the same with a clear ice versus uh, cloudy ice. And usually when we talk about clear ice, it's extra large ice as well, like an old fashioned on one big cube. And that's also aesthetically a lot more pleasing. Now, beyond that, um, there are the, the trapped uh, air and impurities make the cloudy ice shatter quicker. And when the ice cube is melting and it hits that cloudy part. You get this uh, rush of minerals into your drink, which most people probably wouldn't taste. I'm such a nerd now that I'm like, oh, time to change out the ice cubes <laughs> in my glass. But it uh, can impact the flavor a little bit. And it also will crack more once it's in the part where the gases are trapped because it the, the liquid hits on uh, different surfaces and then it's more likely to uh, crack the ice cube. So it tends to last longer in your drink, uh, diluting it more slowly than with like one big round cube is the ideal uh, shape to not cool your drink quickly, but have it watery, but to sort of sit there and slowly cool it. Like if you're sipping a scotch whiskey or an old fashioned um, that's the, the ideal shape for melting slowly. But on a hot summer day, maybe you want those 
crappy cubes that are made in your ice machine that <laughs> pop out and they're crescent shaped yeah. and white in color. Horrible to look at. However, they will make your uh, summer mojito a lot um, colder <laughs> faster. It's amazing. I don't think that people realize that you actually teach full seminars on the topic of ice. Like we're just getting a little snippet, guys, of what Camper knows about ice, which is incredible that you took, which really is like one of the, and it's been said before, right? It's one of the most important ingredients, if not the most important ingredient in a cocktail. And you recognize that early on and did the research for all of us. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, It was fun. And as I said, I wasn't really expecting to to solve a problem, just identify the the false um, solutions that were out there. And uh, it's been fun and it's allowed me to get nerdy on it. And as far as playing around with big ice and clear ice at home, it's essentially free, unlike the, the booze you're putting in along with the ice. So it's like arts and crafts, but then you get to drink at the end. And I like that aspect of it a lot. I'm always freezing different stuff inside ice cubes, inside clear cubes to um, mostly for Instagram, but also for my own pleasure. You know, oh, it's Halloween. Better go get some spider rings and freeze them in the middle of ice I've seen that on your social media, Mr. Camper. It's super neat. I love it. You know, something else that you do besides teaching us about the importance of ice is something really important that you've become an expert on. And and I wanted to ask you, because I wasn't too sure where your curiosity came from or where you recognized this. And that is cocktail safe through your website, cocktail safe, because I know uh, for me personally, my research began on cocktail safe ingredients when the whole resurgence of bitters came to be. And everybody was just kind of throwing everything into a bottle, maybe not realizing what was harmful for consumption and what was not. But I would love to get your take on what inspired you to really get the word out. And you constantly are getting the word out about what's safe and what's unsafe, right? to use in drinks, why this is important, and why everyone should have one of your posters hanging in their (laughs) walk-in. Yes. So what happened was in conversations on Facebook and with, with bartenders in person, we were noticing a lot of unsafe ingredients or techniques finding their way into drinks and no, there was no place to read about them to, um, to refer people to just be like, you can't put tobacco in bitters like that is so poisonous and so dangerous. It's, it's the most dangerous thing that bartenders were doing pretty much. So out of discussions from a lot of people, particularly um, Avery Glass- Glasser of founder of co-founder of Bitterman's Bitters, is really smart about this stuff. And he would write about it. And what I thought the industry needed was a centralized location for safety information. Because in the craft cocktail renaissance, there weren't a lot of high quality ingredients. Everything was neon green and blue and and purple. And bartenders started making their own ingredients that they couldn't source in commercial products. So we all got very used to, oh, just make it yourself. Um, Find an old recipe and recreate it. However, a lot of old recipes were very unsafe. And a lot of ingredients have since been made illegal, um, outlawed in different countries. And the United States kind of has more than a lot of parts of Europe or made illegal in different ways. So the goal was not 
that I'm this genius of, of safety and, and know food chemistry so well, but just to centralize the information so that anyone could refer to it. And the bartender community passes a lot of information person to person rather than uh, via books and internet and, and heavy uh, reading. It's a lot of it's an oral tradition. And so when people are talking to each other, they'd be like, I don't know, there's something that you got to worry about with Calamus, go to Cocktail Safe. And that allows people to find a, a place where they can research this stuff and avoid uh, dangerous ingredients. Can you maybe tell us what are some of the watchouts? You know, what ingredients sure. should we absolutely not be even considering putting in a drink? Well, there are uh, different um, ingredients that are just unsafe and illegal, and that would include tobacco, most most notably. Um, the, the taste of tobacco in an old fashioned sort of makes sense. Like the, the flavor we often describe whiskeys have having tobacco notes. And uh, that's sort of number one, both unsafe and illegal. Then there are some things that are legal and unsafe and some things that are probably not so dangerous, but they're illegal. So a bartender could theoretically run afoul of the law or the, uh, the health inspector, the food inspector um, coming into a restaurant. And those would be things like a sassafras, which was in old root beer, which um, it contains saffron, which in like 1960s, 1950s was found that it might cause cancer in rats. But from what I understand, that might not hold up to modern scrutiny. However, the United States made a, a law that you can't have any saffron, which is the ingredient in question in sassafras. So what I tend to say is, okay, let's be smart and just find something else. Uh, may, maybe it's not going <laughs> to give you cancer uh, in one drink. However, like, we can, we're, we're smart people. We make uh, ingredients all the time. Let's find something else. And so now when I talk about safety in cocktails, I try to give options to ingredients that you want to use, but we probably shouldn't use. So for um, sassafras, there's uh, sarsaparilla <laughs> and as, as an alternative. And for tobacco, we can use uh, smoked teas like Lapsang Souchong tea as an option. Another one that had come up is making homemade tonic water. That was a still a lot of bars do, and it isn't necessarily going to cause problems, but it has caused a lot of problems. Uh, you can get an overdose of um, the quinine, and the condition has a name. It's called cinchonitis or, or cinchonism um, because it comes from cinchona tree bark. That's the name of the tree from which quinine comes. If you want to make your own tonic syrup, you might get some bark from the internet and make a syrup and may or may not strain it well or use a lot of it to have a big flavor impact. But those chunks can hold a lot um, of quinine that might process more slowly in your system. So if you're a bartender, you're making your own tonic water, you're testing recipes over and over and over again, that's the most likely circumstance where uh, someone's going to uh, have symptoms of cinchonism is, is the testing. So it's, it would be like drinking tons and tons of uh, gallons of tonic water, but you're just in the concentrated syrup form. Those symptoms are usually uh, swollen, feeling head, headache, uh, tinnitus, the ringing in the ears is one of the very distinct features of cinchonism, as well as a lot of muscle soreness in the mm -hmm. extremities. So some consumers have actually come down with these symptoms as well. 
from having only a few uh, gin and tonics with homemade tonic syrup in the drink. And we don't need to do that. Like we can, the other thing is homemade tonic syrup tends to be brown. It's really unattractive. And um, I personally don't really enjoy the taste of it. It's, it can be used in in smart, uh, interesting ways, but pretty much the bottle tonics that we have on the market are taste a lot better than someone's brown tonic syrup. A gin and tonic is supposed to be a crisp, clear, you know, almost stingingly um, strong and crisp drink that uh, to enjoy on the hottest day of the year. But uh, a brown syrup with soda water added is going to have less carbonation. And it's going to, the barky notes are going to come through from the tree bark rather than just the purified quinine that you would find in commercial tonic water. So it's a completely different flavor experience, which is fine. However, when you want, when you ask for a gin and tonic thinking you're going to get Mr. Crispy right. and you get brown and sludgy, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's a bit disappointing. Different. It can be. Well, I know that you wrote a book about gin and tonic and you know the history of gin and tonic. Can you tell us a bit about the book and what inspired you to write it? Is it your favorite cocktail? What did you learn about this libation? Well, there's so much uh, history in the drink and that's why I decided to write the book, which is just a little self-published thing that I'm going to actually stop selling because I've rolled that into a larger book that uh, we probably won't talk about because uh, I haven't even edited it yet. I'm waiting for edits back from my publisher and it won't be out till next year in the summer. So let's not, let's not rush it. But the gin and tonic has this amazing history because the cinchona bark is a cure and preventative for malaria. And that was discovered in Peru by Jesuit missionaries in 1630. And it changed the entire landscape of the world. It allowed exploration into places that had malaria, uh, like India and Africa. Eventually, malaria came to the Americas with the European colonizers, and then they needed uh, quinine for that continent as well. And it just has an amazing history as a, um, as a medicine. And medical history is a lot well a lot better documented than cocktail history. And so it's hard to figure out who invented a drink five years ago, let alone uh, in the early 1800s. So I got into that history just out of curiosity. Well, what really happened was I was writing an article and I went to look up the date of the creation of the gin and tonic. And I could only find information like, well, sometime in the 1800s, or there were a few dates, some general in, in India in 1837 or something like that. I saw in a couple sources, but I could never find a first reference to it. So I did a lot of my own research on that. And I found actually the earliest reference to the gin and tonic that we know about um, only using uh, Google books. It wasn't like uh, I was looking through the Vatican archive or anything like that. Um, but uh, we found that, and I think that was around 18. 18- 67-ish in um, in India, and it was in this sporting magazine, and it's a bunch of British people watching a horse race in India, and they're like, you know, chip, chip, herio, like, let's go for some gin and tonics, and uh, that's what we saw. And still at that time, the gin and tonic was a medicinal drink that people were taking to prevent malaria, um, as well as quinine became associated with everything positive uh, when it came to health. So it was sort of like the electrolytes of today, like put it in everything, um, put it in your shampoo, you know, and uh, it uh, 
so the drink just had this fascinating history. And then we got to the point at where we're enjoying it and it's not just medicinal, but it ends up being in a lot more ingredients than we think about. We hear quinine, malaria, gin and tonic, but uh, quinine is in pretty much every single Italian bitter liqueur. Like every Amaro has uh, cinchona bark or purified quinine in it um, because most of those date to the mid 1800s. And Italy was a place with terrible problems with malaria going back to the earliest days of Rome. Malaria killed tons of popes left and right. <laughs> popes were dying of malaria. People would go out to the um, countryside to avoid the, the late summer, um, thinking they were avoiding the stagnant air that they thought caused malaria, where they were really avoiding mosquitoes, of course, that we know is the, the cause the, the, that transmit malaria. So eventually, until the marshes were drained, um, sort of World War II time, Italy has had huge problems with malaria. So all of those famous, iconic Italian liqueurs they all had quinine in them, along with those, the other bitter ingredients that we know, wormwood and gentian mm -hmm. and things like that. <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I think everyone should pick up your book <laughs> and yeah. read it. It's amazing. How do you like your gin and tonic? I like it. I, I did some research um, on the ideal ratio of gin to tonic, and I actually don't remember the exact answer, but I found that if you're using like a new Western style gin versus a classic gin, you wanted a different ratio of gin to tonic. I like them. I like them pretty strong. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it's something like um, two parts gin to three parts tonic ar around, around there. And um, surprisingly, uh, less tonic with the higher proof, bold classic gins than mm -hmm. with the new Western ones. And I don't really know why um, that would be the case. It's sort of uh, two bold ingredients, the bitter tonic water meeting the juniper of the uh, gin versus the sort of more fruity gins, for some reason, lend themselves to just a, a bigger pour, uh, like a more refreshing drink, perhaps. Yeah, I, and, I agree with you with that 100%. I cool. Do. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one because um, I haven't really talked to anyone about that. So good. <laughs> so exciting. And what, then, um, uh, what do you like for garnish on your gin and tonic? What's your preferred? So I like lemon. I'm a lemon gal. I am. I, I did a test. <laughs> this, this is so me. Uh, you know, I made a matrix and I did lemon, lime, and grapefruit and tested peel alone, uh, wedge, or uh, just juice, mm -hmm. and uh, for for each of those in each style of gin and tonic. So I had to drink a lot of gin and tonic. <laughs> Pity me, but I oh, no. I believe I found that uh, lemons were not not my jam. However, better in the new Western gins mm -hmm. uh, than yeah. the classic ones. And uh, I liked the the lime wedge um, pretty pretty highly, or the the grapefruit peel. Yeah, I think was second. However, between like the wedge, the peel and the juice between grapefruit and lime, I found it was more of a preference and I couldn't say that one was strongly better than the other. Right. It's just personal preference. I just love yep. the taste of lemons. Like, so that's just me. Yep. And, I, and I just love the, the grapefruit with uh, tonic water. That's mm -hmm. my, that's my thing. That's why I like it that way. Absolutely. Is there um, a particular type of tonic water that you like to use that you could suggest? Well. 
I had tried to, I had heard from some formerly well-respected bartenders. They've, they've come down in my opinion, since they told me that you could uh, use the high fructose corn syrup, sweetened tonic waters, like, um, the Schweppes that you can get in America, mm -hmm. as long as if you add a dash of bitters, you can sort of fix it. Uh, I disagree with that. Um, after testing it, I found there was no way to make high fructose corn syrup taste good. Um, and no one should drink their gin and tonics with that. So I end up using Fever Tree or Q, um, which are okay. two of the brands that the better brands that most people use. Or I wish they were not so expensive, but um, a good gin and tonic is worth it. You know, I, I love Fever Tree and now you can really find it. Like it's very accessible where a few years ago it was not. And now you can find it. I know we have it at our local grocery store. You know, you can really find it in a lot of places. So yeah, I wish you could find it in the bulk stores like Costco. That would be so helpful. That, that would um, and maybe so you can. Helpful. I haven't been in a Costco in several <laughs> years, but, I, but that's, that's my personal goal is to get it by the case of the, of the big bottles. Yeah. I was buying a lot of it for events and I had to get it delivered to me and it was just so heavy because everything's glass. I, I, mm -hmm. I wish we had um, cans, but I think glass might hold more pressure yeah. um, for the, the tonic. I do also like the East Imperial brand, but it's rare to find it anymore. I think it's more of a European and uh, Asia thing. Right. They, 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 made a, they made an entry, but I don't know if it stuck or, or not. I think it's uh, far easier to, if you're selling liquor, to sell it with other alcohols than to try to sell a mixer along with other alcohols. From mm -hmm. what I understand about distribution, that's a little challenging right. because there's probably less of a profit and the, the distributors probably don't push it as hard. Right. Tell you. Um, let's talk about Cocktail Green. You have okay. so many cool projects going on. That's my, my third so for my third website. So, yes. Let's talk <laughs> about your other, other, other website. <laughs> Brands, oh, like, can you way, tell us what Cocktail Green is and how do we find it and why we should right. be visiting it? So my three websites, Alcademics is, is my main one. Um, CocktailSafe.org, we discuss. It's Alcademics.com. And then it's cocktailgreen.org and they're all linked from each other. So it's not hard to find if you find yourself on one of the three, but um, bartenders were similar to how for cocktail safe bartenders were becoming more interested in safety, but there was no centralized place to find information about uh, safety for bartenders. A lot of people have been talking about sustainability in the cocktail world and there have been articles here and there spread throughout, but again, no centralized place for sustainability information. So I put a project proposal together and was able to get Patron Tequila to sponsor that. And I spent a long time just before the pandemic um, building this website with all the information I could find, mostly not original from me, but information from bartenders who are trying to get the most out of citrus in particular, but also be more sustainable in their use of less plastic and reuse of other ingredients and put that all together. And then we hit a big pandemic and we went from plastic straws being the most evil thing that you could possibly do in a bar to disposable plastic, everything for uh, consumer safety, which is more important. Uh, but we we did a complete 360. And in fact, things were far worse in terms of sustainability during the pandemic. Sure, a lot of stuff got thrown away because it was too hard to plan for exact usage. And we had a lot of disposable tools again. So that's a bummer, but the website uh, lives on and it's uh, 
hopefully a useful centralized place to find information on sustainability uh, in for the bar environment. It is such a living thing, everything that we use, and we throw away so much, yep. really do. Uh, so the more info that's out there, the better to make us better and better yep. to our planet, the better. And, and particularly when we have uh, restaurants with cocktail programs, we have food waste as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, smart bartenders are finding ways to use items from the kitchen and the bar. They might be able to use the um, uh, some carrot tops to say to make a, a carrot top syrup mm-hmm. or something like that that uh, might have been thrown away. And, and vice versa, some of the, uh, the bar leftovers can be used by the kitchen and uh, I've seen a lot of really clever ideas that way. Yeah, I have too. I like to use everything that I can on, you know, um, everything, every part of a piece of meat, every part of a fruit or vegetable, whatever it might be. But also I think that that's something that a lot of us have grown up with, you know, Mm -hmm. within our families, we see that we see our grandparents do that. I know my grandmother Rosella used every part of everything, you know, she came from Italy and that that's what they did. So it's, um, it's a good lesson to pass on and to carry on for sure. Yeah. And I also find it really stimulates a part of particularly bar managers' uh, brains that they like efficiency and um, schedules and spreadsheets and mm-hmm. um, just uh, figuring it out, essentially, how to, how to use every piece as far as um, it's just more efficient to, to get that done. It's, it's less wasteful. It, it costs, it saves money as well. But it's uh, it's another piece of the puzzle that a bartender can put into the program mm-hmm. and um, be successful there. And I think it's very satisfying and rewarding when you find a new use for something that you used to throw it away. Like that's that's awesome. <laughs> I agree. It's very awesome. You know, something that you said in the beginning of our conversation was that you really started your journey into the beverage world as more like as like a club kid, right? And then it morphed into so much more. And because you've been in the industry for quite some time and you've had all sorts of experiences, all kinds of bars, all kinds of people. And as we are trying so desperately to come out of this pandemic and not take 10 steps backwards, right? What are some of the good things, some of the good changes that you have seen in our industry over the course of the past year? Well, interestingly, as now we're having, we're seeing a lot of anger on customers' parts. So there's a lot of stories about mask regulations and people's consumers' reactions to those. But if we think back about it, 15 years or so, the whole idea that there were rules at the door of your speakeasy bar. Remember when that was controversial? Like, how dare you? And there was a whole thing, well, this is a bar that doesn't serve Alabama slammers or whatever. Like each bar is unique. And I think in some ways, we, we meaning like us in the industry, but mostly bartenders, not me, um, sort of helped uh, train consumers to think about a bar is not just a bar. You shouldn't be able to get every single drink in every single bar, much like you can't get McDonald's food at Olive Garden or whatever, or fine dining at a, a fast food restaurant. So with this consumer education and understanding, we got to a point where we could all relax a bit and then have a little more fun with the drinks. And you know, there might be a blue drink on a menu that uh, was a bar that was too snobby to carry vodka before. And uh, as people understood, we got to loosen up a bit. I think now we're, we're a little bit back in that where we're training, need to retrain guest behavior a little bit. Like it's, oh, we're not going to do that here because 
we care about you. This is it's actually customer service in a different way. Much like there were rules in the speakeasy bars, like do not approach women. Like you can ask to be introduced. Like don't, this isn't a singles club. This is a, a bar where we're all seated. And now we have kind of similar things, but it's a, a bit around safety and a bit around just caring for other people. And the overarching thing happening, I think we're finding is um, it manifests itself through some negative interactions for now, but within the bartending community, it's become so much more about caring for each other and uh, coming together to keep each other safe, to be more aware of uh, issues that might be impacting people that we don't interact with every day, but we're like, oh, I, I wasn't aware of that because I haven't experienced it, but now I see it and I will try to do better. For example, a lot of uh, equity and uh, racial justice and things like that, uh, that have been great improvements in the bar world recently in that we started paying attention to them. And then we come into this pandemic where not just treating people with respect, but uh, with health and uh, care has been the topic of the past couple of years in abstract ways. And I think the bar community is going to come out much stronger, maybe a bit smaller, but uh, more caring. And um, I don't know, I, th I think it's creating a better world with within our, our cocktail sphere at the end of the day. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think we have learned a lot of lessons over the years, but you know, COVID definitely forced us to take a time out and take stock of what's important. And what's important is each other and taking care of each other and making sure that we're, like you said, that we're all safe and, um, and that we respect one another. So I am right there with your brother, hundred percent. Um, I enjoyed having you on served up I do hope that you will come back and talk about your next book, The Big Secret That's Coming. What a dun, dun, tease dun. you are. <laughs> My goodness, <but laughs> it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I can't <laughs> wait to hear We'll more see. When I get my that. edits back, maybe the publisher won't agree with that statement, but <laughs> I'll cross my fingers in the meantime. Well, we'll have you back when you're ready to disclose that. Okay. Would love to have you back. And um, Camper, I just, I want to wish you just some really great health during this weird time that we're living in and just a lot of peace. Thank you so much. Cheers, Camper. Thanks. Always great talking to you. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! <laughs>